Hey everyone, it's Mind Rolling and uh, David is back with me again. I'm so happy about that. And uh, because we're going to kick off the new year, 2022, this is the kickoff podcast. It'll probably come out right around New Year. And uh, I couldn't think of anyone else to do it with except for David because I think we've been doing... The only other person I remember doing uh, a New Year's podcast with is Ramdas. We would do that. Uh, not maybe every year, but uh, we did a few. I was just thinking about, it. wow, I'd like to hear what he had to say. Mm. Uh, I'm sure it'll, some of it would be very applicable to these wild times. My God, two years into a pandemic now, and uh, it's uh, it's it's quite a world. So we uh, we who are the team behind Ask the Experts. We know nothing, so uh, but we love to share. And uh, one of the things that David, you've been actually reading a lot about Tulku Urgian Rinpoche in the past quite some time, and mentioning to me in almost every conversation. Oh, I just found this thing. So everybody out there. David is going to... Well, hi, Dave. First of all, say hi. Hi, hello. Hi. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I started uh, studying him in the spring of 1994. Uh, I was a, a producer and writer at ESPN, believe it or not, and um, a fellow producer at ESPN had taken refuge with Lama Norla in, in New York State. And he gave me this book, called The Bardo Guidebook, and, um, which is by Chokji Borgim Rinpoche, which, which is his son, one of his four great sons. So he gave me that book, and then I, I became intrigued by that particular lineage of Buddhist masters, and then got into Tolku Orgyan Rinpoche, and have been reading him uh, ever since repeatedly, mm-hmm. which is rare for me, because I don't, you know, once I've read something, I've read it. I don't usually read it again. But with these books, I read them over and over and over. Mm. Which either proves that I'm obsessed, or um, which I think I am, and or completely taken by his way of describing reality, mm. reality as it is. So yeah. his most famous work is the book As It Is, which is exactly what it's about, as it is, in volume one, volume two. And I think it's available. Um, there was mm-hmm. a time about 10 years ago when I lost one of my volumes and went to Amazon and there was only one available and it was $500. So I, I didn't buy it, actually. Mm-hmm. And then the, pa- then the paperback became available about three months later. It was an agony. Mm-hmm. I'd lost the book. I never mm-hmm. found it. Anyway, that Tulku Orgyam was a great lineage master uh, who was born in the 1920s in Tibet. And uh, I died, I believe, let me see, I have it written down here, in 1996. So he lived to... Right. And unfortunately, one could have met him if one lived before that time, was alive then. And uh, I unfortunately, I I read and I look and I I go, oh boy, how did I miss that one, you know? So, but here we are uh, because these kind of beings don't really go anywhere. That was a physical manifestation. He was a... um, a 
one of the greatest non-dual masters uh, in Tibetan, in the Tibetan pantheon of great Rinpoches, of which they have so many. And I, I just want to say, Dave, that the idea for doing this thing struck me as a great one when we're ta- talking about something that opens up a new year and we can add something to it. And certainly some of the concepts that he represents and who he is as a, uh, an individual with such a profound understanding of, as you called it, reality, uh, that I'm hoping that if we can manage to sort of, as you and I talked offline uh, before, if we can manage to just make as practical and clear as possible some of the things, some of the things he's talking about are just plain old, totally direct and some of the things are arcane and so we will do the best because you're talking about knowing nothing and we represent the knowing nothing actually the true knowing nothing there there's one did you read about the, this is just moving into a whole other thing but did you read about it's the same thing this guy at the end of the so there's a book called Blazing Splendor, which Dave and I have known and read for many years, and uh, which is basically his memoir. It's extraordinary. But if you uh, there's one particular lama named Shechen Kongrul is his name. You can't I can't even pronounce these guys, and and he he stands out. And why and he was very important. He got killed by the. Uh, Chinese uh, at uh, in the late fifties, and and it's really a wild story that the reason it happened is because he stopped to help some people, knowing that the Chinese were around, and sure enough, they showed up and took him away. But the only reason I'm bringing this up now is he says that the the first thing that he said about this Lama was. He had reached the collapse of delusion. I like fell in love with that line. He, had, the collapse of delusion, and uh, certainly Tulku Urgian Rinpoche represents that as well. And also the fact that he has four sons, three of whom we know of fairly, and other people, I'm sure, people out there listening would know as well because the, they're pretty active in teaching and so on and doing, you know, now, of course, online courses and all of that. Tsokni Rinpoche, Choki Nima Rinpoche, and um, Mingjur Rinpoche. And, and unfortunately, I actually don't know. Um, actually, the other son is C.K. Chokling Rinpoche. Uh, maybe he's more active in Europe. I'm not quite sure. Anyhow, more of the, the bottom line, on again why we're doing this these these sons of Tulku this is just an extraordinary family and these sons of Tulku Urgian Rinpoche are vastly important in in the west now because they do teach a lot in the west and um, what how they're translating some of these arcane principles philosophies uh, is extraordinary 
because it's so relatable. So that's why we thought this was a good lead-in to a family that can, I believe, really help us in many different ways. And, and, and one is able to actually get with them uh, as soon as this pandemic is over, uh, whenever that is, but certainly online. So I just had to say that just because I think that's the extraordinary importance of Toku Ergen Rinpoche and his family. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can only speak about his importance to me, really. And the fact is that there are very few uh, teachers that you haven't met who you feel like you have. And we could get into all kinds of theories about that because, you know, extremely well-known uh, yogis and teachers and masters have spoken about knowing people in various lives, if not thousands of lives, with that exact person. So maybe you did know them, but let's leave that for a minute. I was just captivated by the fact that he starts his teachings where other people end. In other mm. words, he says, you know, enlightenment, well, you know, get rid of the delusions, get rid of the obscurations, understand that all thought is a projection of the essence. You all have you all have Buddha nature. We all have it all the time. We never lose it, but we obfuscate it because we're so distracted. The question is, how do we solve that? And his simple sort of way of saying it is, short moments many times. It's almost like a, a fortune cookie. Short moments many times. In other words, it's highly unlikely we're going to be in that state of natural mind for longer than a few seconds. And he says that repeatedly in his books. A few seconds. And he's talking about himself, not about... But if we do it repeatedly and don't forget that that's what stops the obscurations and puts us in a place of what he calls cognizant emptiness, the knower, the pure knower, which has no material self at all, the more times we do it, no matter how short it is, the more we learn to do it, longer. At one point in Asitis, he says, can you imagine what it would be like to be in that state of non-thought obscuration for one whole hour. Mm. And he says, masters take a lifetime to achieve that. Can you imagine a whole day? Or can you imagine a whole life? A whole life is bodhisattva, Buddhahood. And therefore, a long way away. Because it's obvious to me that I was always very frustrated that I would be distracted extremely quickly, both in and out of meditation. And therefore, what the devil was I doing? And what he makes quite clear to everyone is it's so easy because it's so close to us and it is us. It's so easy to get that it doesn't seem like it, it really is it. In other words, Buddha nature. He makes a point many times. It's too easy and therefore we can't see it. We need rituals. We need religions. We need ideologies. We need thoughts, debates, books, music. We need it all. But what he says, that's fine as long as you know it's a magical play. And that what you really can get to, you can get to by this rehearsal, the constant rehearsal of these moments and glimpses of shunyata. And if you can do that, you'll get better at it. And I agree with him, because in the 20, whatever, 27 years that I've spent reading this man, meeting him actually in a, in a real way, but never obviously in his real body, um, I've grown better at it. I'm still nowhere, but I've gone better at it because I read that in 1994 and I read it this morning in 2021. So 
what does it do for me? It makes me understand that those glimpses are vitally important to everybody. And if you feel like you're in a glimpse, don't hold on to it. Just live it for a minute and then it'll go away. And then you'll think about your grandma or you'll think about what's streaming tonight on Netflix or you'll be hungry or you'll be lusty or you'll be bothered by something. But he says, Urgin says in his lineage, they taught, you know, remember the glimpses, forget the obscurations. Sounds too easy, doesn't okay, it? Okay, yeah. But no, you, but, you know, but, but, so let's it. stop there. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's, what are we talking about? See, that's the thing I have with reading these kinds of books is that they're so intellectually appealing uh, that they may take you out of the present moment. You're flying off into these grand concepts and having well, hope and all that. But, I mean, what are we I, talking about here? What, is, what are these uh, moments that we're talking about? Well, they're glimpses of, of, of what, they, what the Buddhists call ordinary mind or, or actually Buddhahood or Buddha, Buddha essence. What are they? The moments that are not distractible. You're just in that space. And we've all had them, but we don't, we don't remember them or we just don't take them seriously or we think they're magical. And this thing that we're living in right now on this podcast in this room with my cat scratching my arm right now <laughs> is real. And that other stuff is just airy-fairy bloody nonsense. He says that the reverse is obviously true. Because when we die, we lose this body. What retains? And what is this thing? And he says, it's the mind. What is the mind? The mind is the knower from emptiness. It has no material, has no material body, but still knows the knower. What is the knower? The knower is what you feel in the glimpses. I can't do it any better than that, because any better than that is just not saying what he says. He says, as it is, is in the glimpses, the short moments of realization that we all actually have, but we're not trained to take them seriously. He says the training in his lineage is to take them seriously and to learn to grow them like you grow a plant or you grow a relationship. You grow those glimpses into longer glimpses of the reality that happens to you instantaneously upon death. Well, you got a problem with that? I got no problem. How and could I have a problem? But no. I have a problem. Well, what's with, so hard about it? It's it's, not, it's just well, it's 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 it all. It makes it truth. so much easier. All this but meditation and, and stuff and lifetimes doing that. How do you better? cultivate? Is what we need to talk about. By recognizing, by, he says, by recognizing it. You can't. To me, you can't. You know, that's for Westerners. That's just not possible without taking other steps first. Yes, you must be in a discipline, a teaching. Right. So this is like, as you said, he starts from the end and works back or something. But he never right. says you can't do that. He says it's advantageous to take what his teaching is, which is Dzogchen, Mahamudra teachings, but if you're a Christian, you can do it. No, I mean, it's just, you know, what did Christ say? He said that, uh, you know, basically this, is, this life is a, is a school. And it is from the, the glimpses of reality and love, moments of love, as Oregon calls them. Uh, it's from those that we learn, but we don't see them that often. We don't feel them as much as we might. That's all. Yeah. You know, in another place, he said, uh, and I think this, these are, I loved uh, the 
way in which each of the sons recounts their experience of their of their dad. And um, so one of them said to him, what's the most important practice? Because he, he would say practicing the Dharma mm-hmm. was his, you know, that's the main thing. That's the main teaching, practice. So that's why I'm saying, okay, what are the practices to, to even th- start to have these kinds of moments can only happen through some very uh, disciplined practice, meaning doing it every day. Let's just start there. But he said, when someone asked, what's the most important practice? He said, regard devotion and compassion as the most vital. Okay? He emphasized that devotion and compassion are indispensable to recognizing the nature of mind when one receives the pointing out instruction. Yeah, he also says Buddhas and Bodhisattvas expression of mind takes the form of compassionate activity. In other words, this practice will result in compassion. It's not yeah. just a, a mental exercise. Yeah. No other thing can happen once once the uh, you entered into the stream. Um, but yeah. And the other thing, of course, um, let's see what he says, once you have the openness of faith which allows you to see the guru bestowing the profound instructions as a Buddha in person, then it is possible for the transmission of the ultimate to take place by introducing the nature of realization and to recognize non-dual awareness without a flicker of doubt. So regard devotion to be of vital importance. So talk about non-dual awareness, right, which is... The, the way that um, the nature of it, recognizing the nature of mind happens through, through that practice. Mm. And then he throws in devotion. That's the great thing about the Tibetans. They, uh, they have quite a combination of the non-dual and the devotional state. That to me is if we could parse that a little bit about what that really is, that is the greatest offering that, that they have, um, that combination, especially for us, that us that have been uh, devotees of Neem Karoli Baba for many years. And uh, the reality is that we were taken into a similar training without there being any uh, overt instructions from Maharaji Nimkaroli Bama. And that included Buddhist training in mindfulness and you know, insight meditation and so on. And so that's why when I read, when I read this stuff and we talk about it, I mean, the fact that uh, that combination is being expressed the way it is is uh, it, it gives faith and really faith of being on uh, on a path that combines both of these aspects of a path to reality. So yeah, yeah, I, I think he, I think he was a good exemplar of that because even though he talked about this, you know, his concepts of of, of reality, he does say all the time that he spent you know lifetimes, but certainly that lifetime that he was in till 96, 
you know, from the age of five, he used to run away from his father, who was a lineage holder, by the way, a great tolku. He'd run yeah. away from his father and mother and, and try and get in a cave because he'd heard that the yogis were in caves. There were some caves near to where they were in Tibet. Remember, this would be before the uh, Chinese invasion. And um, they'd have to drag him back because he kept, as a little boy, instead of, you know, looking at, you know, um, animated movies, he was looking for caves and would find them and they'd find him and he'd think that he should meditate in them. He didn't know what it was, but by the age of 16, he was a full-grown tulku because they told him he was. And what does that mean? It means that he inherited the teachings and the spirit, if you like, of a previous master who was in that lineage. So he was told that when he was a teenager. And he had no problem with it because it wasn't like he was looking for, you know, uh, looking for anything else. He was just looking for the teachings that would train him to be, uh, um, you know, to be what he became, mm. um, a, a master, a real master. You know, well, I mean, if you haven't read the books, it's a bit, you know, I, I admit it's a little bit difficult to, but I do recommend the book as it is, actually. I recommend that book because it's very talky. It's a, it's a talk, you know, they're talks. They're not written books, they're talks. So when he laughs, they, they write, Rinpoche laughs. And it, it helps because you understand that he's laughing because he finds it so absurd that people are, that they just can't see this. He's quite combative, actually, Rock. And if, as you read the books, he will say, you know, the public is that I have to deal with sometimes. The people are, they take um, this life too seriously and don't understand that it's a passing, a very passing thing. Mm -hmm. And the, they don't want to learn that because people feel that it turns into nihilism. Mm -hmm. So yeah, right. he's very careful, biggest. you know, yeah. he's very careful to say this is not nihilism. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the knower out then, of the emptiness is not the knower out of the empty. And he makes a big point about that. Emptiness yeah. is not the same as empty. So it's not an empty universe with no motivation. Something is perceiving because we perceive. And he says that. He says many times direct experience of the knower's experience, if you can go there for a moment or enduring meditation or not, um, you know, that's what he was about, uh, was releasing people from being too obsessed with this uh, body and this mind that ex exists in this particular incarnation. But I like how his sons talk about him being extraordinarily kind, not just to anyone, not people necessarily in, in the mm. Dharma, mm. In, the, in the practice. And that's the true reflection of one of these kinds of beings that have mm. gone beyond, shall we say, gone beyond the self-interest, and is right. that they're just plain old kind. I mean, His Holiness the Dalai Lama is the most uh, yes uh, exact yes. example. I mean, yes. it's just incredible. And so that, and you know, what does His Holiness say? Kindness is my only religion. Yeah, but um, yeah. Yeah, this, oh, just mentioning one thing, because whenever we talk about guru, that brings up a bunch of stuff. Um, because it's been so misused, misappropriated, that word. And uh, there have been so many uh, varied experiences that people have had through the decades since the late 60s when we, and early 70s when we came up, 
that uh, sometimes when I talk about it in in this podcast or wherever wherever I might be, because people ask about okay, this comes from where is Ram? What was Ramdas expressing? Well, of course, it was coming from his guru, our guru, Neem Karoli Baba. And as soon as that happens, then there's a feeling of being left out. There's a feeling of exclusivity potentially. Mm-hmm. There's a feeling of uh, wait, you know, how dumb can you get? Don't you realize now that? Uh, which this is a true statement. Thich Nhat Hanh said, "The the Maitreya, the coming Buddha, is the sad, the Sangha, and it's coming through us." Absolutely correct. So we get a lot of different uh, pushback in one way or another around this term. And uh, in this particular book, here's what Tolku Urgen has to say. The true guru will awaken from within your heart. It is said, the guru is not outside, but within. That means that you are face to face with the true guru the same moment you recognize the nature of mind. Please understand this. So, again, but that is uh, recognizing the nature of mind is a bunch of work's got to go into that. That is not something... I mean, there are people who have natural occurrences of, of breaking through mind. Uh, I mean, the most famous one I think everybody out there may know is Eckhart Tolle. He had that experience where he finally broke through. Um, Adyashanti had an experience like that. And it it definitively changed them moving forward, although that didn't mean that they were suddenly enlightened by any stretch. But it definitively changed them, and to the point they became a real vehicle for helping other people, which is really what it's all about. So, uh, yeah, just... And Neem Karoli Baba said, the guru is inside, it is not outside. And at the same time, we did get over there and a bunch of us, a couple of hundred Westerners, did meet this being and uh, whatever, for whatever reason we needed to. And it's all about that. There's no, you don't, nobody can look for the guru. Uh, the guru finds you. Teachers are a whole other thing and of which mostly that's, they, as Ramdas would say, they point to the truth. They are not the truth. And there's very few that have gone beyond, like this Toku Urgian Rinpoche. Well, to our knowledge, yeah, but of course, in that tradition, there were so many of these guys. You know, just it just never stops when you read these books. There's one Toku after another, and each one of them is venerated in another kind of way. You know, and it's just amazing that we know about this stuff because the Chinese could have just wiped out the whole damn thing. I mean, they could have. They just weren't able to. Tibet's a large country. And people were able to get out of there, some people. And that's why we know about them. You know, I mean, if the Chinese had not, or the communist forces yeah. had not yeah. entered Tibet, we might never have known more than we, we know from, you know, Alexander, David, Neil, and all these people. I mean, we knew a little bit, you know, but the the awful experience they had under um, that oppression, which was violent, um, mm. 
made them understand made them understand that the only way they could survive was by spraying out into the world, initially Europe and then the Americas and everywhere, and and teaching what they knew, and keeping keeping their lineages alive at the same time. So I mean, not that one would ever want what they experienced, which was very bad. And um, uh, some years ago, Raga and I worked on a project where we saw vi video film actually. Mm. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, actually, doc. Yeah, uh, Cry Tibet. of the Snow Lion. It was Tibet. Cry of the Snow Lion, yeah. Tibet, though, is first, because if you want to look for it, Tibet, Cry of the Snow Lion. Right, right. Is the official right. title. And you see, not that you would want to see it, but you see things you've never seen before. And uh, in terms of the way that they were treated when they first invaded, and the nuns and the, and the, and the, um, the entire spiritual community was disrupted immediately. Uh, but they survived. I mean, and... They they do it without rancor. His uh, Holiness very rarely says nasty things about China. He he, he just doesn't believe that that's going to help. It's not going to help him, or, or more importantly, the Tibetan diaspora. So, um, which and now the Tibetan diaspora is us too. Those of us that aspire to like trying to understand what what they're teaching, uh, millions of people have become part of that. I believe millions uh, worldwide. I would say millions. I'd say that's true. Yeah, so that's pretty yeah, heavy truth. That you know. Like amazing, yeah. 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 So, it, you know, you know. Um, well, it's amazing what the Chinese did and the effect it had wasn't all one thing. I mean, we would never have access the way we have had in the last, you know, 55 years, whatever it is. Yeah. So pretty, yeah. pretty yeah. amazing. And, and we have amazing access because it's not just a little thing. There are thousands of books and companies like Shambhala and so on that are just constantly pouring out new, new works that have been discovered or translated. Yeah. The translations, in my opinion, are usually excellent. I mean, they just sound like the person was speaking in English. And uh, so that's a very high bar they have. Uh, the translators of particularly the organ people are uh, fantastically mm -hmm. well translated. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention something that he mentioned. Mm -hmm. The third Karmapa said simply, in the moment of love, the empty essence dawns nakedly. Now, what does that mean? In the moment of love, the empty essence dawns nakedly. And that's the third Kamapa. That's not me saying that. Now, what does he mean? I guess what maybe he means you is, were the. Well, maybe, yeah. Third you know, I, I, like, I like the name Kamapa a lot. Um, but <laughs> Raga, you know how amazing these Kamapas are just from the recent one, 15, 16, 17. They're amazing. But this was the third one, which must have been a long time ago. Hmm. In the moment of love, the empty essence dawns nakedly, suggesting that this is not, as it were, an intellectual or even a typically spiritual exercise. It's love and compassion will bring about this vision if it is done without um, uh, desire, shall we say, but with true compassionate oneness. So the oneness that experiences within love is the doorway to the idea of cognizant emptiness, the idea of there being a benign knower, a knower that knows us all, that knows us all. And those fleeting glimpses of the knower, he says, come more frequently in the moment of love. And that can be helping people who are homeless in Los Angeles right now to eat and to bathe. Or it can be one's tremendous love for a partner, a wife, a husband, a son, a daughter. All of these can manifest love. And the Kamapa was saying, yes, and it's in that moment that you can't experience the insubstantial knower. 
it's, right? it's unconditional love. We have to differentiate because okay. the love, be, uh, when you say man and wife, well, friends I was just and whatever, a lot of that is involved with I'll do it if, I'll love you if. There's an if, you know, that's, no, that's a n- bit of that. a different thing. Although, but, although in the first even that, stage, yeah. I mean, you know, I've had moments of, you know, there were, I guess, a mix of a sort of, a mix of love and lust, and the lust prevailed sometimes, and sometimes it didn't. But it would—I was left with love, even though it was not pure. It led me to something mm-hmm. that was pure. Yeah. So love yeah. breeds Agreed. love. Yeah, you know? yeah. But I think what what we're talking about is in that state yeah. that one gets, everyone has experienced of love. Yeah. What's the first thing that happen, happens? It's wait. You you forget about yourself. Right. Right? That's right. the very first thing that happened. In that forgetting of yourself, in the way in which you stop identifying with being the doer in the moment, that goes away. Then mm-hmm. suddenly, this to me is what one part of the complexity or simplicity really of emptiness when they talk about it, it is empty of uh, self-referential desire, grasping, judgment, all of the stuff that we know about on a day-to-day basis. Can you imagine? Okay. And you can. Every one of us can because we have had love. And we know that when we're in that moment, then we are not thinking about ourselves. And we start, suddenly we're thinking about others. But the not thinking about ourselves is the beginning of relaxing into the, uh, the notion that they're speaking of, of no doer. There is no, nobody who is... Uh, no longer identifying with all of the um, the disturbances, the joy, the whatever, whatever phenomenon are not being identified with. That to me is the beginning of uh, the profundity of emptiness. And so I love this thing where through love that gets... Uh, that flowers. It's through love that emptiness flowers. It's what uh, uh, Bob Thurman talks about. Emptiness is the, the womb of bliss. It's the way in which love manifests this empty of bullshit <laughs> that we are doing on a day-to-day basis, either to ourselves or people around us. So, yeah. I mean, what, what the teacher does there is, that, you know, if there are people listening now, for instance, who are depressed or watching, whatever, however you're getting this podcast, I've been depressed in my life. I know what it feels like. Um, you know, what does this mean to you? And and I think it's a good way of examining this kind of teaching to see how much it can affect someone who's not disposed to this. Maybe it won't ever get through to someone who's really, 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 and you need a, a really good therapy. But, uh, you know, psychological therapy. But it can help because if you're told repeatedly that if you, you know, via meditation or just living, you can experience unconditional love and um, your life can become uh, a tool in that. You know, you become a, 
unconditional uh-huh. lover, you know. Yeah. And you keep telling people, if you can just think of that, because the number of times you see, like in television, you know, where there's a tornado and everybody's been ripped apart and the houses are falling apart and it's horrible. There's always those moments when the news will show two people who drag children out of there or, or yeah. a cop or an EMT person. And I've heard from those people, you know, that when that when that's happening, it, it takes away all the pain of the tornado. Now, they weren't the ones that lost someone, maybe. But in those villages in, in, in Kentucky and so forth, they knew everyone. Yeah. Uh, you know, the three, four, five, six hundred, two thousand people in the village. You know a lot of people. And you know someone who knows someone who got killed or lost their house or their child or something. Yeah. And those EMT guys and, and, and everything are in there working. And you couldn't stop them from doing it. That's what always blows my mind. That they are, I, they're far superior to me. I'm not a person that's going to run into a fire. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, when on 9/11, I was in Midtown Manhattan. I didn't immediately go downtown to see what was happening. You know, I wanted to get the fuck out of there really quick. And that's the difference between me and an EMT person. You know, so I mean, I'm trying to bring this, as you said at the beginning of this, away from just you know this incredibly high fluent stuff that he does teach brilliantly into how can this kind of teaching or some version of it do that? And I think that what you just said, what you're talking about, that the cultivation of loving others and forgetting your, your, your own body, mind that you, you temporarily in, as Tolkien Organ says, he says, the body and the mind are like a hotel and the man living in the hotel is the mind. So the body is this hotel we're going through for 50, 60, 70. If you're Jim Morrison, 25 years. If you're John Lennon, 40. Many people. I just read in the New York Times yesterday that the average age of death is the one I'm at. Okay? I mean, that's Americans in general now live to 77. But people die and go through suffering and go through all this. How does this help them? Well, it helped me. I wasn't dying or going through suffering, but it helped me. And I'm really a critic. I don't, I don't. Like anything. <laughs> I, yeah. I think that, yeah. I think the initial intention has to be there around knowing oneself. Yeah, I agree. And these mass, these Tibetans, uh, and, and him in particular, of course, was one of the great meditation masters himself. That is a major, major uh, way in which they suggest that one can get to the to that place where the glimpse happens and uh and it needs a day-to-day practice and it needs some idea of what we're talking about and david you know you've been going through different things i have something here um it's a response that he had uh, people just uh, asking questions and so on uh how how uh, this is a general question uh, about how um how we get to be foolish basically how can we be so foolish and he says what fools or seduces us is our own thinking right so everybody who's listening to this knows that full well we yeah. all experience that and he says almost everybody is taken away by that demon. Of course, we're also under the power uh, of, of 
of the aggregate, which I, this is something I'd have to, we would have to delve into much more to understand the demon of the aggregate. I think it's the, the way in which when there's a lot of ignorance, then there's a, an aggregate of that that we are also dealing with when you have a body. Uh, so it may be difficult, but maybe it's not so difficult. Simply don't do anything to this present wakefulness then that demon won't pop his head out of that wakefulness because it's not possible. We usually get tied up in the web of past thought, future thought, thought of the present. Let go of those three. Be here now comes up again, right? Mm. <laughs> exactly what he's saying, yes. Yeah. This is the vivid present wakefulness. Okay, and and now he actually translates that. What does vivid mean? It means transparent, wide open, unobscured, like crystal. So transparent, there's nothing cloudy going on to pull you in one direction mm. or another. It's mm. wide open. Your mm. curiosity is there. You're, you're happy to discover in every moment. And... And it's unobscured. So the obscurations are not there. The obscurations, which is all the desire systems and attachments and all of that, they are gone. That is the wakefulness that he's talking about. To yearn for some extra superior state than this present, than this present wakefulness is simply fooling yourself. Because, and, and that I kind of mentioned a little earlier and it's something Ramdas used to talk about particular about uh, the Buddhist uh, Tibetan Buddhist path in that it is such it has such great cr crystalline reality and it is so appealing it's it's easy to get lost and he would say what happens is uh, people get entranced and forget about the heart forget about the actual experience of, of what has been described. And, um, yeah, so mm. while recognizing rests naturally, if you recognize it, you are a Buddha. If not, you are a sentient being. It's very simple, very clear, like the dividing line between light and shadow. You, this is a great, great uh, example. You cannot separate a lit area and a shaded area from each other. They are so close. It's like the front and back of your own hand. Buddhas and sentient beings are only that far away from each other. And Rinpoche shows his hand. This is what it is in actuality. This is the front. This is the back. They seem to be apart. They may seem to be apart from each other, but actually they are very close. That gives that that's a little bit more of uh, faith, uh, inducing faith. The this example of how close we are, the the letting go of uh, of all of the stuff that drives us on a day to day basis, the jealousies, the anger, the attachment, the desire, everything, the obscurations. It's not that far. Once you let go. It is not that far, and you can see that once you start to let go 
of the way that one hangs on tight to defend our ground. Hmm? Yeah, it's 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 weird because it's so easy and yet it's so like I I don't know why, but just towards the end of what you were saying there, I was thinking about a conversation I had with one of my daughters yesterday, and the conversation for at least ten minutes was about uh, the difference between her television set and mine because I'm about to buy a new one, and I wanted to know what a smart TV like hers does that a dumb TV like mine doesn't. Now we spent a long time with her expressing to me how she deals with how she interacts with her her LG, and I was trying to work out how will I enjoy And we talked about this very, very much, and then we both started laughing because we realized that we were so caught up in this. Or I was, she wasn't. I brought it up to her. I said, listen, boy, tell me about your TV. So what is the right mix? You know, in other words, here we are. We're in this body. There are things we like, you know, uh, ridiculous things. Like right now, at least... 50 million people in America are watching Succession. Uh, the, there are? I mean, it's just a, a massive, I don't know what it is, but it's, it's massively oh, ahead. It's not 50 million. No well, way. whatever the hell it is, I don't know what it is. It's 1.46 million. I don't know okay. what it is, but it's like huge. It's big as Sean television. And it's about a bunch of sociopaths, basically. If you really look at it, that's what it is. And yet we get addicted to these things, these magical shows. We like the magical show of movies because it reminds us that this one is also a magical show. <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is watch a movie from the 1940s, a big movie from the 40s, and realize that every single person in it has passed. And there they are on your TV screen in the movie form, very alive. Barbara Stanwyck, Cary Grant, they seem so alive on that little screen or even on a big screen. But they're gone. And, and I make the analogy because even though we think this is solid, this Mac I'm looking at and this roadmaster, whatever it is, podcaster, microphone, and so forth. It seems very solid to me, and I touch it, my finger doesn't go right through it. And yet, of course, uh, these masters can see that it is not solid. It is temporary, and it will go. And how do you deal with that when you actually finally sort of get that? You know, that nothing will stay the same, except the knower. That's it. I mean, yeah. it's that simple. Nothing will stay the same. Nothing. That's a toughie for me too. The knower, that just indicates there's a something, you know. Well, there is a something. There, I mean, no, it's something that is driven by mental thought. Well, knower. he's it's, he's it's, talking about it's a tough thing in Tibetan translation. Whatever you know, that word well, is in Tibet. What does he mean? He means that when you know, Tibetan. when we the mind is empty, there's nothing there. But something is perceiving. Are we a reflection of, of something else? Yes. I mean, we are, and we know it, but we don't know it well enough to be the knower until we, you know, transcend this magical show. And, yeah. and we don't transcend this magical show until we die, actually. Because no matter what, unless you are a tolku. I mean, let's face it, the difference between a tolku and me is that I meditate 35 minutes a day. A tolku meditates eight hours a day for 70 years. There is a difference in, in the intensity of the experience. But Orgyan says all the time, it's direct experience that gives us the faith. Nothing else. What does that mean? Direct experience gives us the faith to continue with the practice. Well, he means that you've got to have the feeling, you've got to have the perception in order to train to keep the perception. So how do you get the perception? Hmm. 
you meditate, you do yoga, you do Kung Fu, you do whatever it is that, that your particular exquisite karma demands of you. You know, some people do not want to do, you know, asanas. I don't. Other people only want to do asanas. Other people, you know, are totally into doing, you know, deep prostrations, 108 prostrations to a, a deity. And they love it and they should do it. I don't do that. We all have our own exquisite way of pursuing this. We have to believe that. We wouldn't be incarnated in separate bodies. Yeah. No, that's the beauty. The universe provides all of the different kinds of methodology to get oneself out of being unhappy all the time, you know? I mean, let's yeah. just go back to... Uh, there's a there, uh, something else that I think is really incredibly bright on and for us to understand. It's not, again, some of this stuff is like... If, if, if it's... One thing is it may be difficult to understand. Another thing is... Uh, it just gets your mind uh, ahead of where you, you know, you, you, you that thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's one huge problem mm. that I think can happen with this kind of material. You get ahead of where you are because you're intellectually, of course, accepting it and it's all truth and so on. But perhaps the, the activation of that which allows for us to, again, quote unquote, know oneself, uh, is not really happening in, in the way that makes uh, the possibility of the glimpse happen yeah. through tremendous devotion and practice. Um, so he talks about the distraction involving the awareness wisdom being overtaken by ignorance. The knowing by unknowing is <laughs> false knowing. This unknowing has two aspects, innate and conceptual. So here's where we go with what, are we, what is he really talking about? So um, as long as the innate and conceptual aspects of ignorance are not purified, we are simply remain as sentient beings at the mercy of the waves of coming and going. So innate ignorance is simply to forget. You forget. You yeah. cannot, the glimpse is like you've completely forgotten that it even exists. And that happens, of course, uh, when one takes birth, then one, uh, we, the fortunate Tibetans, the tolkus that were immediately taken and within the first few years of their life and, and trained... Uh, so that they don't forget. That's pretty amazing. Conceptual ignorance comes in the moment. So first you forget that there even is anything like this existing. <laughs> and when we start to think forming thought after thought after thought, as one thought follows another, a long train develops. These innate and conceptual ignorances form the original borderline between a Buddha Buddha mind and sentient beings, humans. They are what make the difference between confusion and non-confusion. Mm -hmm. That is pretty simple and direct. First we forget and then as soon as we forget, mm -hmm. we have one thought after another that is just leading us down the road to fulfilling desires and grasping and 
fear and anger, all of it. Uh, the Tibetan term for enlightenment translates as translates as purified perfection or cleared up and perfected. It's like, yeah, we're going to go to the skin doctor and we'll get this stuff cleared up and you'll have perfect complexion. It's the ignorance that needs to be cleared up. The qualities of wisdom don't need to be perfected. They are already perfect, perfected. The ignorance, however, is like clouds covering the sky. We need to let the clouds of confusion naturally disperse into basic space. They're in that beautiful uh, Ram Dass's great analogy of uh, there's the blue, sk- there's uh, first the picture with clouds, but in the little corner you see blue sky and you move to cultivate that blue sky of awareness. Um, yeah, he says too, you know, in connection with that, he says, once you've seen the sun, you don't have to see it again to know what it is. You will see mm-hmm. it again, but once you've seen it, it's there. And that means that once you've had a glimpse of unobscured, shall we say, reality at this point, or the, the, the pure love, interconnectedness, and oneness of the universe and beyond, uh, you don't have to be told it again. You just have to remember it, as you just said. Yeah. It's not growing a different you know, sort of flower every time. The biggest problem I have with this is that sometimes I get mixed up. Like I was, I was on my run yesterday in the woods and I saw a bird I had never seen in the woods before. Never. Uh, in all the decades that I've been doing this, it was a beautiful blue bird. It wasn't a blue jay. It was another kind of bird. I can't quite find out what it is. It flashed in front of me in the dark winter woods, you know? It just went in front mm-hmm. of me and then flew off and I, I watched it and I, I went, oh, come back. I want to see more of you. I want to see more of you. I've never seen you before. Come on, come on, come on. Of course, it didn't come back. I'll never see it again in this lifetime or any lifetime. And I conflict sometimes about how much pure joy I get these days from the manifestations, or as a Buddhist called the mandala of nature. Mm. The mandala of nature. And there's when I kind of go, there is something to enjoy. I love life. I do. I mean, and we all go through suffering, and suffering usually comes from grasping, and not always. Sometimes it comes out of the sky like it did in, in, in those places that were hit by the tornadoes a couple of weeks ago in the United States. People weren't doing anything and suddenly their life was totally changed. But once you've seen what it's like to be clear, you have some chance of repeating it. And he makes it very clear that, you know, what I feel is that there's some kind of parallel thing between true enjoyment of the universe and non-attachment to its to its perpetuation. Yeah, that's it. You can enjoy. It's just the attachment. Keep telling me that because I need to know that. I'm Keep serious. I'm not. I'm like, yeah. I mean, tell me to enjoy life because frequently I I, I don't because I think oh, you well, know, it, it's it's just a passing show and I might as well forget about it. It's like it's just, next, you know, next. It is that, that, especially in nature, you see uh, this beautiful yes. manifestation as a bird. Yes. And you just kind of grok into that manifestation or identify into that manis- manifestation and it's God or whatever you want to call it, Buddha mm-hmm. mind, whatever anybody wants to call that thing mm-hmm. beyond description, ineffable. And you're not trying to hold on to it. 
You don't pull your camera out right away. This is all things that I do all the time. And me too. Um, but even that, you can pull your camera out and still be part of it without yeah. with that inner hook. That And the hook is it's going to go away. And, and that's going to make you sad without that you can let go in the moment. That's a great uh, teaching in nature, being able to let go of these experiences where it's okay that you won't see that bird, which you just said, ever again, potentially. It's okay. So everything becomes a little bit more okay. Again, one has to work at getting to that okay spot, right? I mean... Um, that's why, the, uh, you, sorry. No, go ahead. Go, go, I was go. just saying that that's why Ramdas has been so important yeah. for so many of us in our lives because by those three simple words, of which they were just the beginning of thousands, if not millions of genius words, but those three words be here now. I mean, I, I, every time I, I used to go up and down Lexington Avenue in New York, I used to laugh because there was a restaurant on the corner of, I think, 76th Street called Eat Here Now. And, uh, and it entirely came from Ramdas's book. Um, but, you know, there he was back mm. then saying, well, you don't need LSD to do this. It helped me, but maybe I can help you not use LSD to do it, which is to hold on to the present. And Oregon talks about this many, many, many times in his books about the, we, the present, past, and future are our biggest chain around our neck. Forget the past, forget the future. Try and and be in this present as present as you can be, mm-hmm. and that's why you know um, there aren't many gurus. Ramdas said it many times in the last ten years of his life that there weren't that many around. Yes, there are teachers, great teachers, but the gurus come when they want to come, and they don't need a body. That's the point. Right, right, right. right. They do not. Right, and it's uh, right. it's been so evident true. to us for these many years. Uh, here's uh, one last thing that I, I did want to share. Um, this is from Mingju Rinpoche. Now, Mingju Rinpoche, you guys can look up on Mind Rolling. I've done a couple of podcasts with him, with Krishnadas, actually. Just phenomenal. Uh, and they're best to look at, at uh, on YouTube because we had a really good transmission. And he's just so beautiful. So uh, this is what he said about his father. We look at him and we see him as a human being, just like us. He needs to eat, he got to go move about, go to the toilet, just as we do. So aren't we the same? He says, actually, we aren't. <laughs> Rinpoche's experience of his identity is not linked with a material body of flesh and blood. This is hard for ordinary people like myself Oh, yeah, to understand, but that's how it actually is. If we train ourselves in devotion while deeply trusting that this is his real nature, then there is no doubt that we will receive his blessings. The vital point is to have trust in and devotion for your guru. But the more of the point here um, is Toku Urgian Rinpoche was not at all attached to his body, his identity as a tolku or anything, right? It wasn't linked, as he says, with a material body of flesh and, and, and blood. And that's hard to understand because we are so attached to our bodies, to our minds, to our emotions. 
I mean, it sounds like radically impossible. But these people, uh, you know, they give us the kind of faith that it is a reality. And, and for myself, I have, I was fortunate, aside from, of course, Maharaji Ninkaroli Baba, in, in terms of his root guru, Tulku Urgyan Rinpoche, was Karmapa, 16th Karmapa. And I was so fortunate that, to have his darshan. And he was a gone beyond master, for sure. I mean, for sure. <laughs> this is that show, Ask the Experts. They know nothing. But all I can say is that uh, the same kind of spacious and you could call it empty feeling because I wasn't thinking about myself when I met him and I was six, I've told the story a billion times, I was six feet away from him in, in terms of the ceremony where you get a, a scarf uh, put on by, you give him the spar, scarf and he put, silk scarf and he puts it on. I, I felt nothing but Neem Karoli Baba, that same thing, not the personality, that thing that represents the divine essence, the ineffable that you can't say what the hell it is. It's a mixture of extraordinary, unconditional love and wisdom, basically, is, is the most simple way to put it, uh, but it misses the point. And then his, uh, his um, reincarnation, the 17th Karmapa, who is alive and well, and uh, many people, uh, uh, it's too bad, of course, what's going, it's too bad in so many different ways, what's going on, uh, not being able to gather and not being able to travel pretty much, um, that they, they aren't coming here the way that they did. Um, I'm not sure where, I think he's in Dhar, Dharamsala, but he can be met, and I'm sure at some point. Uh, so these beings give us extraordinary examples of what can be, and that's the whole point of even talking about Tulku, Urgi, and Rinpoche. And it's the whole point of how his four sons, at least three of them that we're, uh, Sharon Salzberg uh, and Krishna Das, people you know, and I, uh, we have taken advantage of, of, of his sons in, in the context of getting to the point where naturally we can have that glimpse, which is what David started this whole conversation. Right? You know, yeah, yeah. I just was looking at my notes and the last note I made was, was something he said. He said, we may be living in a dark age, but we still have the ability to recognize our own nature. When the age of degeneration is rampant, the Vajrayana teachings will spread like wildfire. Hmm. I mean, uh, that's an amazing quote, really, because it's yeah, saying it's it's right now, we are living in a pretty weird time. Uh, and for those of you who are watching or listening to this much later on, uh, I hope it's lighter. But he says it's got nothing to do, in a way, with the way we perceive ourselves, you know. I just wanted for the people who were going to look at this on YouTube and to encourage people to do this by just showing you this man. That's him, yeah. Well, we're going to put some pictures up on the show notes and everything else. A beautiful um, man, you know, yeah, beautiful, yeah, laughing, really. humorous, and, and very human being, you know. And kind. I mean, that's everyone who talks about him. He was so kind. and um, Yeah. All right. Well, we're we're before we leave here. What the? Um, I mean, this is moving into twenty twenty two. Do you have any pro prognostications? Is that the word? Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Give me the right word because you're a college teacher. 
Well, it's not. It's four million <laughs> years ago. I, I I know what you mean. Um, oh, <laughs> help me out. No, God I don't know what the word is. I mean, you know what? Prognostication is that a word? That's it. it. That's weird. it. I like. It that. sounds that's weird. It. You know. No, no. Well, I think that's it. Well, give me. Uh, what despite, are they? despite what the uh, media is saying, the uh, the Democrats will continue to win big in the House and win it easily, and all of that stuff is nonsense. And that uh, the benign uh, the benign um, aspirations of those who are not uh, in power but support people who seem to have kindness in their heart uh, will prevail. Um, I do believe that. I mean, I moved to America when I was twenty. Three, twenty-two, something like that. And um, the initial feeling when I came to America was one of great relief. And mm. it's so interesting to me that now it's, it seems so dark here. But I have some intrinsic faith that the youth that is now so conscious of the uh, world ecological crisis and of inequities and of, 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 of all kinds of separations that are just mental contracts constructs coming from some weird place, that those people are beginning to move and act in such a way that we will in fact prevail. And I, I, I really do believe that. I, I think it will, because it seems like it's not doing that. It seems like it's getting worse all the time, politically and socially and so forth. But I think America has a potential to, to combat that uh, because of the constitution and because of the history, the arc of history uh, always bends towards justice is what Martin Luther King said. And I believe that to be true. Mm. It may be a long arc. That's the thing. But in terms of everything else, mm. uh, if you're on your own and you're in quarantine of some kind or you can't get out for whatever reason, check out a little bit of simple meditation if you're not doing it. Do it two minutes a day, five minutes a day, or 30 seconds a day. Just close your eyes and do nothing for a while. And believe you me, it helps because if it can help a neurotic person like the one I know very well, myself. It can it can help anyone. It can help anyone. Um, that's my that's my optimistic mm. words for twenty two. And yes. I like twenty twenty two better than twenty twenty one. Two zero two two. I like that. It's better. Okay. Twenty one is a you're weird into number. Numerology. Now. No, I'm not at all. Actually, I know nothing about it and basically don't believe in it. But oh, come on. <laughs> all right. So I'm gonna uh, just sacred uh, geometry. Sacred geometry. Sacred geometry. Yeah, I'm gonna just take off from one of the things you said. Oh my God. It's actually just one word, which is we. I have faith that we will prevail, you said. Yes. Uh, first of all, we are not going to prevail unless that we starts to encompass the them. Yes. Right? So I think that's one very important uh, fact. I do believe there's a possibility as well. I do believe what you're saying has is rich with possibilities. I do believe we're also facing, you know, tremendous polarization, a lot of difficulties, even just with the the vaccine, not vaccine, pandemic stuff, you know. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we have a lot going on. But um, the faith in next gen is really strong like yours. And I was going to say the exact same thing. I feel like that lead will be taken by this uh, generation of people who want the best for humanity and are starting mm. to think about something other than themselves. So I, I think that that's really true. And in practical terms, probably uh, I think we'll be learning how to live with this uh, virus in 2022 
where we don't feel like you know every time something comes up we have to hide in our closet and i i'm very hopeful there um i was on a zoom call just a couple of days ago with it was organized by dr larry brilliant our good friend and part of our satsang from the indian days who's an epidemiologist and has been working in this field help cure smallpox through maharaji's intervention all the way back in the 1971 two three like that and uh it was a lot about how two things we got to we are going to learn because this isn't going away we are going to learn how to live with it and the second thing is we must stop thinking about just us in america we have to think about the world or it will even deliver other kinds of variants that that uh, can make the future a little bit difficult at least in the short run so yeah we the big thing here is is that we you know getting out from us and them well, that's up to both sides. That's what we're hoping for sides. next. Yes. Well, yeah. no, that's true. But it's, it's it takes somebody. Answer. It takes somebody to, you know, make a move. So, you know, even this stupid thing with Trump saying he was happy that Biden said he did a lot by making that vaccine. You know, getting the companies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And he I said, mean, "I can't say anything bad." What did he say? Whatever he said, I can't say anything. Uh, nasty because that was a kind thing that he didn't say kind I don't think he has that word see I'm doing it now I was going to say I don't think he has that word in his lexicon but in reality he was saying the same thing and didn't that make it made me feel warm warmer it made me feel warmer in the moment now that may be complete naivete I don't but I don't care because I think we need a little of that absolutely I mean you know he um he was booed at that meeting. Yeah, right, uh, for saying which, that. Which is sort of interesting. But I agree. I mean, it, it, any moment where some kind of stuck thing is still sticking and then goes away for a minute even, you know, it helps, particularly if you're a leader, you know. And, and so let's just, I don't know, I think people do get used to things and they get used to transcending them. Uh, and sometimes they're, they're even able to see that their children or grandchildren or whatever can transcend them, and maybe if they can't, and therefore there's, there's yeah. a lot of yeah. a lot of difference in the terms of, of, of familial, family, mm. um, togetherness, which is the beginning of, of other kinds of unification. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being here, Dave. Being we're here. too serious. We're too serious. We're, a little serious. Not, not serious. I know. I mean, why we're serious? You know. Uh, I mean. Yeah. Because we seriously wanted to uh, help understand why Toku Urgin is important, even though that he's uh, not very well known in the West, uh, of course. And hopefully we did a little bit of uh, connecting. Everybody out there, you'll let us know whether there was any worthwhileness to this podcast so this is uh, mind rolling on be here now network go to be here now network.com make sure there's some other great podcasts. we have a new one dave with uh, uh madison margland and it's a uh, called set and setting discussing what's going on with psychedelics and therapy mm. uh, and uh all around that and i she's got some great guests going on there so check that out 
And of course, check out Alan Watts. He's been with us now. Gee, it'll, it'll be a, a year anniversary in a couple of, in a month or so. That's phenomenal. And we shall see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye.